Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Let me fill you in on my my uh, consulting season so far. So every week's a new property and uh, a new problem and new solution. And that's kind of what I'm going to talk a little bit today. I, I'm excited. We, we've got a new guest on. And uh, if you don't know him, I'm going to give him a, a little introduction. His name is Jim Ward. He's been in the industry for quite a while. Very well known. Some of the guys around our podcast have talked about him probably even on this podcast. And, and I, I reached out to him recently and thought he'd be a great guest or somebody that we could have on here to contribute and give some real life examples. He's a practitioner. He's doing stuff in the field, just like me, just like my partner, Josh, just like Jake, just like Todd, just like the rest of these guys that are out there doing the work. And the guys that do the work that have the real experience, that's where the rubber meets the road. And it's important that we take the time to listen deeply about these things, because I think a lot of times, you know, I'm studying stuff and I'm coming up with theories and I'm thinking through things. And then when the rubber meets the road, the practical examples that we get into of, you know, building a property, laying it out, et cetera, like requires a really fine eye and, and somebody who has real perspective and experience. And, and through all this, you know, we've had a lot of failures and successes. And I think Jim will share some of that stuff with you today. And I'm, I'm excited to have him a part of this podcast. Hey, Jim, are you on the line? Yes. Yep. Okay. Do you want to introduce yourself at all um, and tell you know the, the listeners just quickly about yourself? And uh, I know you work all over the country. Where are you right now? Um, so right now I'm in, in Indiana. Um, just got back from a trip uh, northern Wisconsin up by uh, Oconomowoc, or north of that actually, Oshkosh, sorry. Um, so I was up there doing a food plot in the timber. Um cutting probably 90% of the trees and then they're going to make walls around that and then connecting trails to other food plots on the property. But yeah, I spent two and a half days up there. So good. Are you tired? <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how many trees I cut, but chunking them up in about 12 to 15 foot pieces and knocking a lot of limbs off of them. I was somewhere probably around 600 trees and, you know, 1,800 cuts, so yeah, uh, <laughs> a little wore down, you know, so. Yeah, so I'm kind of interested, and I know you you book clients for a certain period of time, you you know, you work hard, and then you, you know, you kind of go to the next client. Um, do you have stints where you're working more than two, three, four, five days in a client? Um, what's your typical interval of, of with most clients? Well, it sure varies, you know, a lot of guys want to get it done now, and 
and that's kind of the reason for the hinge cut trees. Uh, I feel, you know, it's more of an instantaneous cover and, and a lot of food down, but yeah, um, I was in New York in December and, and done 10 days on a property. Um, you know, I, I'm seasonal work. Nobody wants me to be out there during hunting season. <laughs> so I, I'm typically about the first of December around till, you know, about the first of September. And then I do most of my work on my own place, um, September, October, typically. So, um, yeah, um, you know, my, my average guy is, is two to three days. And, and my intent is to uh, show them about terrain features and how the deer want to use their property and travel and give them some great examples with, with building uh, at least one bedding area, a lot of times two bedding areas. And uh, I think that the picture or the visual is way better than just trying to explain it. And, you know, I've tried many ways with videos and whatnot, but doing it on their property really, uh, helps them it seems to me and so yeah um i started out doing plans and whatnot and i realized that the guys didn't really understand what needed to happen there and so over time i've just evolved into doing more of the work and yeah um, i better results myself that way yeah and i'm right with you and i think what one of the things that i've talked about here is that you know i'll come and i'll show up on a client property and lately um maybe not the past couple clients, but I'll stay and I'll cut timber on them. And it's so valuable for them to have those couple days with me because yeah, in theory, you kind of lay it out, but in practice, when you're actually cutting timber and showing them, okay, this is the way I prefer to do it. I'm thinking about so many different aspects of not just tree species, like we're talking terrain, all the things that kind of go in spatial distribution, how you put bedding areas in this location and why versus over here, how deer are going to escape that terrain and thinking kind of through that whole philosophy. I think a lot of people don't realize like it's probably just as valuable to let somebody stick around for a few extra days and pay whatever the rate may be. Um, And that really will set you up because you're going to take that example and copy it and paste it across the whole property. And a lot of times you can do that and and you'll be very, very successful. So I I like your model and I like that's uh, that's your strategy. And you were in my home state of New York, which is, which is awesome. But when I I last talked to you, you were in Maine, you're up there cutting a client property in Maine. Yep. So I want to get into some of the specifics. So, you know, your strategy is specific to what you've learned over the years and what works and doesn't work. I want to talk about failures. Last week we had a podcast and we talked about it was Steve Shirk. He does uh, hunting strategy and tactics on this podcast. And we were talking about, you know, what he failed at this year, this year. And, you know, he's susceptible to uh, drought in his particular area. And it changed the way the deer u- utilized the landscape. And he was two steps behind him. But in your example, you know, you're thinking about all these things, but you're thinking about layout a lot of times. Over the years, what's failed? Like what has not worked? And you're like, man, that seemed like it worked. Or I thought it was going to work and it didn't work. Maybe some examples of that I think would be cool. Well, so, you know, I started out right off the bat making plans and those were designed around how the client wanted his property as far as, you know, his desires on timber value in the future and, and aesthetics and, and, and everyone says they want to harvest mature bucks, obviously. But when you get into the details about how to go about that, and so, well, so I would lay a plan out and then when that plan would get put in place, I'm saying four to five years later, or a lot of that put in place, what 
I didn't take into account was the drawing power from the neighbor's properties. And um, so that's, I feel like one of my big failures. Um, I have, I've been successful on, on harvesting a lot of deer in my lifetime. And a lot of those deer were on public land and I've done it in a lot of different States. So I learned what type of terrain features in the vegetation know the habitat that mature animals wanted to be in and then i would take that and say hey i'll put that right here on the right terrain feature and and i'm positive this is going to work and i i'd cut in a travel corridor and and, and mark stand sites but and and that that worked on the property but what i'm trying to get at is how much we pulled from neighbors properties into it um I didn't account for that. And so now I believe with me putting my access along property lines and putting a wall cover inside of that, which is real close to the line, I'm saying within 25 to 30 yards of the line. Now what I'm doing is using way more of the square foot of my property or the client's property, but also putting that cover super close to the neighbor's property. And, and what I'm seeing now a lot of times is when the neighbor comes in to hunt and bumps those deer, they come behind that first wall cover there, right? And so that has, that has changed the number of deer on the property. But then also that also changes how I'm going to access the property once I start seeing those heavy trails that I'm pulling deer into. Um, so along with that, one other thing that I feel like I've done wrong in the beginning and, and my videos over the years will show this is I started making just huts and I'd make these these huts on the terrain features and they work and I show videos of them working on properties online. But what would happen would be is either the huts would fall down over time just cause of gravity yep. and, uh, and the deer eating all the buds and all the, the leaves they could get at the bottom limbs would die and allow the, the, the stuff to come down. And they took a lot more maintenance. And then if I'd done too many huts, um, I would get the area either too thick or I didn't cut enough canopy away to keep the huts alive in the beginning. And so there was, there was a couple of things about the huts that didn't work as well as these walls of cover I'm using now, which allows more sunlight in and less maintenance work. So, so a couple of things is yeah. the attraction, but the walls of cover that we're going to discuss really have um, helped and benefited in both situations. The the thing you just brought up there is definitely a topic I think a lot of people don't pay attention to. So the hut philosophy or strategy is interesting. Um, we still use that. I still employ that in some capacity. Yeah. And uh, it yeah. works. And it was funny because a few years ago, in fact, the client, I'm sure he listens to this podcast, we were working on his property and we were building struts. So to hold up these structures, we were dropping trees. Hopefully they were getting enough sunlight. You know, we were cutting stumps at a certain height, like basically pollarding the trees, 
kind of creating a V-shaped, you know, building structure like you'd build a deck. And then we're right, building right. on top of that. And then we were taking cedar cedar trees and cutting wise out of them and sticking them as support beams like you're building a house. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I agree with you. I think over time, if you're not maintaining those, they're eventually going to collapse and they take up space. And uh, I'm not saying don't do that because we still do it on properties. But again, it's just another thing to think about long term. What's the maintenance behind, you know, that particular strategy? So I agree the huts work for the person that their skill level with the chainsaw, maybe they don't have the confidence to cut the bigger trees. Um, the huts work for them. The huts are typically made out of, or most people make the huts out of smaller hinge cut trees. I'm saying up to six to maybe eight inches um, at breast height. And, in the typical timber in the Midwest, most of those species that I'm talking about are junk species that are that size in the understory because they're shade-tolerant trees. Right. And so making the huts, typically you're not messing with the actual future timber value very much, you know, and it still works. And so, um, yeah, that's where I started out at. I think it's still something a lot of guys uh, should do. Uh, it's a lot safer than what I do now. Um, you're not having to have the knowledge on timber value as much or what species grows in that soil or in that region of the country the best. Um, the kind of high grade toward that species like Southern Indiana, the best is white oak. Um, but yeah, um, each person has different knowledge levels and the huts is a situation to where it's safer and, and, and less damage to future timber growth, but you can still get that low cover and browse and um, get started. You know, the whole key to habitat is getting out there and doing something and then coming back and observing it. And so, you know, the more that a person will do that, the more they learn specifically about their property. And that could be different from, from a property 50 miles down the road. Um, so all that is still beneficial as long as you're moving forward. Somebody's probably going to ask this question, Jim, in some of the areas where you're working and we're talking about these huts, we'll get off of these in just a second. What type of yeah. understory species are you talking about? I can tell you in, in my area, it's ironwood. We use ironwood yeah. a lot in those cases, yeah. uh, but what species do you typically see or like to utilize to create those? Right. It's going to be your shade tolerance, you know. Uh, just like you said, a, a majority of timbers that haven't been managed or taken care of for timber value, it's going to be your ironwood. It's going to be American beech. It's going to be the maples, you know, um, hard maple, soft maple, uh, which would be the silver maple or the red maple. It's going to, you know, elm, hackberry, uh you know, your less desirable species yeah. uh, are going to be those mo more shade tolerant. And, and usually those are going to be healthier and they're going to hinge better for you. You know, a, a sun loving tree is going to be um, less healthy in a shady environment and it's going to grow slower and the, the, the growth rings are going to be tighter, more brittle, and it's not going to be hinged as well because it's not as a flexible tree to stay attached. So, yeah, and, and those species, again, most of the time we want those down if you talk to a forester, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it plays it plays to both hands there. 
All right, I'm going to bring you back. So we're going to get back to the topic of building walls of cover. And this theory that you kind of came up with, at least as it relates to building walls near the edge, and you gave good like spatial distribution, how those are set up, you're going to lose land as a result of that. Everyone just take awareness. Is like you can't maximize, in most cases, every square inch of your property, either for access or other reasons why. So that's just a reality that we all have to like deal with. And it's something that I think people struggle with because they really want to maximize every inch. And in some cases, access obviously is going to take away from that. But in that example, are you in some cases segmenting deer so much that maybe the people are worried about as they immigrate onto your property, they're able to diagnose like precisely, again, this is all timing based. So like maybe the deer are entering your property or exiting your property a certain time. And then the, the neighbor's hunting at a certain time you know, and this obviously in daylight hours, is that distracting? Meaning, is it contracting their movement enough where it's easier to hunt them as they travel into these, you know, walls of cover on the edge of your property? Or do you funnel deer? Kind of go through maybe some of your thought process behind that. Because, you know, I think some people might wonder, okay, yes, Jim gave me the distance, but do we need to funnel deer into the property? Do we keep it a little bit more porous? You know, how do you, how do you kind of construct that example? Well, so the walls of cover... It's hard to explain this because I really haven't ran into too many other people discussing this. One one example that a lot of people might understand is like a feathered edge on the edge of a field. Um, but the feathered edges that I have seen, you know, the different programs recommend is they're cutting it at ground level and dropping that tree straight out into the open area. Mm-hmm. They're calling that a feathered edge. And, and that's reducing the open area by the length of the tree, you know, 50, 60 feet, whatever the height of that tree was when it was dropped out there. What, because I believe that crop ground is worth a lot more typically than timber or recreational ground, um, and most of the people I've worked for over the years didn't want to reduce their crop ground area, and I didn't want them to either because we could use it for a food plot, and it's already – the crop ground is already available for that. What I try to do is drop the, the feathered edge parallel with the edge of the field. Yep. And so that being said, it takes more skill in cutting trees to drop them parallel when they're leaning out than what it does to drop them out the way they typically want to go. But if you study them for a while, a lot of times you can get one tree to lean against another tree to lean against another tree and help you do that. And so what you were saying about reducing square footage, I'm all about what keeping as much square footage available to the animals as possible. And so that's the reason I want narrow walls of cover. The narrowest that you can do and above the deer's eyes. And so I want the, the wall of cover maybe, I mean, the, the ideal, the ideal width would probably be 50 feet, 40 to 50 feet wide, okay. and, and a height of uh, 6 to 8 feet. I don't want my wall of cover at 15 foot high. That does me no good. It does me no good, I feel, for a security wall of cover at three feet high. So it takes skill level to build that height, like you were talking about cutting the wedge at the top of the tree and putting a post there to 
get height up there. Well, I'm doing the same thing, but I'm taking a junk tree that has no value and I'm dropping it down first. And then I'm taking the, the, the next smaller tree, if that makes sense. I'm going from the biggest tree down because if you drop small trees first and then take a big one, what it's going to do is rip all those small ones to the ground, just break them down. So I drop the big one first, use it as my post to drop the smaller ones on. And so an example, maybe so I can explain this a little better. If I'm on the edge of a field, my first big tree, I'm dropping it right down the very edge of the field. And then I'm coming along with my smaller trees and I'm dropping those at an angle also, but I'm laying them on top of that big tree and I'm cutting them higher so the deer can walk around underneath them. So I'm not restricting my square footage where the deer can travel, but I'm getting my son in there and giving them diversity to reach up and browse on that stuff. And so the poorest, I'm definitely trying to improve my hunting when I do this, but there's very, very few people out there that have the skill to drop tree after tree, junk tree after junk tree, I'm saying, not valuable trees. But you have to go around the good trees when you're doing this and you drop them. And there's very few people that have the skill to make a wall that is not porous. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're trying to build height on it and you're trying to keep it tight. And so what you end up doing, if you want to cut that many trees, you end up building two walls with a distance between those, say, somewhere around 40 yards. And so my scenario is, is I build a wall, like a feathered edge right on the edge of the plot. That's going to be maybe 40 to feet wide, 50 feet wide. And then I got my buck travel corridor. And then I start looking to build another wall behind that because what I have is an edge at the edge of the field. Yeah. I got more sunlight to the edge of the field. I got security cover, so now the does are going to live closer to the field. I got my high hinge cuts where they can move around behind my solid wall they can't see through. And then I got a trail that I can run my four-wheeler down and spray and maintain this stuff and put improved food on. And then I got my next wall, so I got edge, edge a trail, edge, and edge. And these are interior edges inside of cover. And these edges produce food during hunting season because that's their main food is the browse. So it takes the pressure off of the food plot. It gives you more food during hunting season. You can get into the open area without getting seen, and it improves your timber. I mean, it's a win-win-win. But again, it takes an ability to cut the trees the way that you want, that they need to be cut. And again, it all depends on what the landowner's after. You can drop the trees straight out in the open field, the first row, and take a tractor and lift them up and spin them around to the edge. I mean, there's many ways you can go about it. You can take an excavator, cut them halfway through, grab a hold of it, and bend that tree over to the edge. But the idea is, a safety wall or cover because that's what the mature deer are after. You know, one thing I want to bring up, and this is something I was thinking about this weekend. <clears throat> I was on my own property cutting. I've got big hillsides and I've got, you know, on one hillside, I'm, I'm basically splitting up a hillside in two sections and I'm planting switchgrass down the center of it. 
and I've got bedding on either side. I've got little knobs or nodules off either side. I'm dropping the trees instead of, you know, I drop them on contour and I don't drop them downhill because I'm creating, you know, the maximum amount of space on this hill. And then I go in with a dozer and from that dozer, I'm building benches into it. So that's, you know, you're dealing, dealing with and creating hillside bedding. And, you know, this theory behind cutting parallel or being like, at least try to be imprecise with your cutting. This takes a ton of time to like fully understand. So I'm going to define what you're calling is just your strategy with the edge feathering. It's, I call it parallel feathering and then reverse edge feathering. So one of the, one of the strategies, and I don't, I've never even talked about this publicly. My clients know about this. So I'll share this with everybody. So I go in and I'll cut the first layer. I actually cut every single tree down. I'll give myself some space. Those trees are typically lying out in an opening. If there's already an existing opening, they're worthless to me. And, ge- and generally, unless they're really small, I can hinge cut them and I can push them actually the opposite way. Sometimes I'll push right. them with a tractor, sky lift. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do to push them inwards. And so instead of feathering outwards, you're actually feathering inwards. And actually, yes. that creates some structure and it creates shielding. Now, sometimes I'll make it porous and sometimes I'll make it non-transparent and uh you know it just depends on my strategy but this wall thing that you're talking about i I mean i've been on a lot of properties jim i don't think anybody's doing what you're talking about right now and uh so so it's really interesting but like you're talking layers i I think of layers as a of a cake you know layer one two three you're you're trying to get the deer to bed at certain layers behind that so can you kind of explain the the wall structure is it usually are you doing straight linear or are you doing like kind of uh varying like wavy or you know what do you, sometimes you're just trying to drop trees and it's like you know you can't be that precise but what what what's, well, what does it look like so so each client that i go to has a timber that has been managed differently in the past right i mean if i go to wisconsin most of those timbers have really been managed correctly because the state is managing them and it's a big tax relief for the land owner that's involved and they bring in people that cut them correctly most of the midwest these timbers are cut the way that the logger wants to cut them because he convinces the landowner you're going to get the most amount of money if i don't take all these junk trees and all this other stuff out of here so the timber there's way less value in the timbers, right? And there's way more junk that needs to come down to, to make it a better timber in the future. And so that being said, to make a wall, every one of them has to be different because of what's available to cut. And me personally, I don't want to cut stuff that is future timber value. Now, there's a lot of guys in the hunting industry that tell me, hey, I don't care. Cut anything that you need to cut. And that makes it easier on me. But so – my walls are covered. I'm trying to, again, avoid good oak trees or whatever, walnut trees. And so it does take a while to drop those trees down. I have done it a lot and done it for a long time. And so I drop the big ones down first. Most of the time, I'm trying to drop two to three to four trees in a row because that tree is pushing the one next to it and getting it. They're tangling together at top, yeah. and I'm getting them to do what I want that way. Yeah. And then – I go down both sides of that wall, knocking limbs off that are too tall or cutting, like you mentioned, smaller trees that I can do by hand and lay up on top of that. So everything that is junk, probably for 10 
yards on both sides of that wall is cut. If it's not something that I'm going to hinge and put on the wall, I'm just going to cut it off because it's going to sprout nutritious sprouts that those deer are going to want to eat on, but I get sun in there. And so I walk by everything that's there, whether it's a rose bush, it's an invasive, a grapevine, a poison ivy vine. Uh, if it's something that is not going to bring timber value, it is getting cut off because it's going to sprout back and they're going to love what they can reach that's coming from that root system. And so now I get diversity of high quality sprouts behind these walls of cover and I learned to do this by going back to properties year after year after year, and this is the most effective way to keep it organized and um, <clears throat> to be able to, to, to explain, to show good examples of what you're after. I mean, I've went into properties behind other habitat guys, and they'll go in and hinge cut six or eight trees in their big trees, and I say it makes like a big splash. It looks like they've done something, right? And they've left they've left 75 ironwoods and, and 50 American beach and, and all this junk that would have actually been way better to cut for the timber value in the future would have gave them way more um, live hinge cuts to keep growing for cover because they're shade-tolerant species and um, would have gave them way more organized cover down low to pinch the deer. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to you. But these walls of cover, again, they're, they're kind of confusing. It can be of anything. It doesn't have to be just trees. You know, I use the giant methanthus, the green screen, which is, a, you know, <clears throat> the um, annual um, ryegrass, Egyptian wheat, that type of thing. It could be 12 rows of corn. What I'm talking about, it could be invasives, cedars. It's a wall that they can't see through. That if it is good browse for them also, that's even better. And if we can make better timber growth, awesome. If we can pinch the deer down with it, that's what I'm about. And they're definitely going to live by it because it's security for them. Yeah, that's really good. And I, I think one of the questions or issues that I've seen is where you have these walls around food plots. And I want to get your opinion on this because I think everyone has a different opinion I've created areas that I felt were way too uh, dense. So you have these dense walls right around a food plot. You've got these really defined entry and exits. And some people say, well, you don't want to have them too constricted. So the space is, let's say, I don't know, 20 or 30 feet rather than 10 feet or 15 feet or uh, maybe even less than that, seven feet. And then having these entry and exit areas kind of large you know, what's your opinion around the edges of, of kind of fields? I like to keep things a little bit light, and uh, I'll tell you why. I've noticed a lot of times that if they feel that they can't jump in and out of an area easily around a food source, depending on the size of the food source, that's critical as well. Um, you know, do you feel like it's better to be a little bit more porous or open or transparent rather than solid walls right around a food plot? And maybe there's a spatial distance thing that you, you might think about. A lot of people think about this type of stuff, and I'm not sure what the right answer is. So what I have noticed naturally, um, a lot of it depends on your deer numbers. And so, you know, a lot of people have talked here in the last few years about, you know, doe factories or, or having too many does on a food source. And, 
And so the reason behind that, in my opinion, from everything I've read and understand, is, yeah, the does, they, they're territorial year-round because they have babies. And they want their babies to do the best and have the best food. And so if, if you have a food plot and you have no cover around it at all, and you have real high deer numbers, and that's the reason you have no cover, because right? they've ate everything. You've pulled them there <laughs> food plot, and they've ate all the browse on the way because half or more is what browse is what they eat naturally. Um, so what happens is, is you'll have a bunch of parallel doe trails coming to that plot. And a lot of times I'll see those you know, 20 yards apart naturally, right? And so when we put walls of cover around that plot, what ends up naturally happening is, as long as the food's good enough for them and they keep coming to it, is we pinch those does down at a narrow spot, right? And so they don't like that. The does don't care for that at all because they're going to be fighting. Though. They're going to be kicking each other. They're going to be on their back feet. Um, now, mature bucks, <laughs> they love that because they're using a square mile typically. They might be using six, eight, ten different people's property, but they know where those hubs are, where those does have to come together, and those does don't want to naturally do that. And so those mature bucks, that's the reason guys are hunting a trail with the wind blowing in their face, that big trail out in front of them, and they hear something, look back over your shoulder, and there's that buck standing there because there's not a trail from one big hub to the next big hub to the next big hub because deer aren't going from one hub to the next. Those hubs are pinched down spots, and that big buck during that time of the year, the most mature buck in the area, he's going from one big hub because he knows where they all are. And so, you know, everybody's got their different opinions, but I start off with pinched down areas around the plot. Now, if you're going to use a tractor or some piece of equipment in there, how small can the pinch down be? I mean, you know, if you're running a tractor through it, it's automatically going to be 10 foot wide. Absolutely. And if you've got equipment behind it, it's going to be bigger than that, you know. Um yep. So my, the edges of my fields are as thick as I can possibly get them, but I am constantly going by on my four-wheeler with, with crossbow or something like that, and I'm killing the stuff I don't want. And so it, in, it automatically makes it porous because there's plenty of stuff I don't want. There's, there's too much rosebush here. There's autumn olive there. Here's a red maple. I'm going to knock those out, and it's going to blow a hole in that wall cover. You see what I'm saying? Even if I don't even want that hole, I'm going to knock those invasives out or those things that I don't want to keep improving my property. And so, yes, in the beginning, my opinion is I cut them. I'm going to leave three to four openings depending on the number of deer in the area. Those spots is where I'm going to have my licking branches and rubs, and, and I'm going to try to have a stand site there. And um, if you overhunt the plot, you're probably going to want to make them feel like they can get out of there easier. You know, I hunt my plots at the beginning of the season, and then when they're in a food pattern, and then I leave the plots alone unless I see something that I need to be there. But I'm probably not going to go back at all to my plots until, you know, the lockdown phase. Yeah. And so, I mean, my deer aren't scared of my plots. I'm leaving them alone there. And so I don't feel like that they feel like they're pinched down or, or spooks at all. Now, majority of the guys I go to, they'll say that they don't overhunt plots or, or they don't put pressure on deer. But um, 
their deer are spooky on plots and they don't get many daylight pictures of mature bucks on their plots. And so, yeah, uh, if you're, if your mature buck is feeling all pinched down, you know, maybe give you some, some, some space to get in and out with. But I personally, uh, especially if you have higher deer numbers, they're going to get through. I mean, I've used equipment. I've used dozers, excavators, try to make walls. And if they want to get through, somewhere in a 50-yard space, they're going to crawl through, jump over. They're going to get through it, right? And so everybody's got their personal opinion. And if, if you see something that's not working on your place the way somebody thinks that it should, hey, it's your place. And it's, your, it's your style of hunting. I say change it immediately. But, uh, you know, most of the time, guys want to hear what other people believe that have some experience at it and uh, go with that for a bit. But back to personal observation on your own property, camera photos, being out there in the snow, you know, recording information, putting it down in logbooks while you're out there. That's how the individual gets better at his way of hunting. Um, so, yeah. So, Jim, I want to bring up uh, just an observation, a bit of data that I think is relevant to people. And it relates well to kind of everything you're saying. You know, you're talking about basically, you know, lowering the canopy to a level where it's going to create more interest. You're getting rid of species that you think are non-productive or non-beneficial to deer, uh, whether they're invasive or not. Um, we're increasing timber production based on our style of cutting. So these are all things that I employ. This is this is stuff that I like that you're doing because I want to do the same thing. And then on top of it, because of all this, because of all the changes, we're shrinking deer's home ranges down. It makes deer more interested in your property. A property that's more productive has more food availability, has better cover. It's going to be utilized more frequently. And that's the goal out of this thing more times than not. You're going to screw it up when you're going hunting. There's no doubt about it. You could have the perfect yeah. setup. You could get everything just aligned, you know, totally correct. And things aren't always going to come to plan. You can't be that good. No, nobody's that good. The other piece right. of this is, you know, shrinking down their movements or creating this just this plethora of cover in order to create, you know, better movement on the property or more confined and controlled movement. You know, you're going to get those people that are in the naysayers are going to say that's impossible. I've done it time and time and time again. And it sounds like you've done it time and time again. And we're continuing to learn at this and figure out, okay, what is the right spatial distribution? How do we build walls? What needs to be porous, not porous? You know, how are these things layered correctly? What do we, when we're dealing with terrain features, how do we do this on, you know, steep topography versus flat topography? You know, I love flat topography because it's really easy to create this type of structure that you're talking about. Hilly terrain, it's hard to hide deer. Uh, unless there's a lot of knobs and nodules and, and deer want that visual benefit, that's why the heck they're there. But it's it's trying to constrict that in some ways. So you've got to be really smart in how you do this stuff. And I'm, I'm always trying to learn, you know, and th this is very valuable to me thinking thinking through this. And I'm sure the audience appreciates kind of what you're t explaining. As complicated this is, you and I have talked before this, and we've talked, it's hard to actually show everybody and explain it in, in words, sometimes seeing it. And, and to me, you know, that's really, really important is, is paying attention to the, these details that we're kind of going through and explain, okay, well, what's parallel edge feathering or reverse edge feathering or typical edge feathering? And, and Jim's example, we don't want to take away from the fields, right? We don't want to minimize the, and usually that's the most productive ground, right? So you don't want to minimize soil that's good, that's going to provide a lot of value to to your deer herd. Um, but areas that may be less, you know, less fertile, and, and by the way, uh, infertile soils have a tendency to 
uh, amplify deer movement. So if you got really bad soil in your area, deer move a lot more. It depends a lot on the deer herd, but deer move a lot more. If you have really, really good soils and you're managing the vegetation like Jim's talking about, their movements are going to be constricted. And guess what? They're going to be more daylight active, assuming you don't hunt them, hunt them to death. So that, that would be just kind of my takeaway or just something that I was thinking about as you're explaining you know, walls of cover and separation and maximizing space and creating layers and then how you construct those and what they look like, and what species to cut. That's what's popping in, in my mind the whole time you're, you're talking. So hopefully that adds to the, the conversation. Anything else you want to uh, add to where we want past our time here? So anything you want to add or talk about anything that's important to you? Well, again, my thinking on this or the way I'm explained is how I want what I want on my property. And so the critical thing is every time I go somewhere is to ask enough questions that, and explain things enough that the client understands what's possible and he gets it his way. Right. And so, but that can also, there's, there's free people out there. The state has state foresters that'll come out and walk your property and educate a person on that. And even mark trees that would be a timber stand improvement type of marking so that the, the landowner can start hinge cutting those species that would agree with if that's his desires to grow more timber trees are worth a lot of money <laughs> and and they grow extremely fast when they don't have competition next to them and so that's a win-win because that means we have sun down to the ground and automatic diversity comes in and when you have diversity you have year-round deer food for free and so i guess that's the last thing I want to talk about is there's a, I'm positive. There's a way to do both and you can even improve soils at the same time. I mean, there's many things that a person can do on their own property. And if we get this information into people's hands, we'll have a, a larger variety of people improving properties. And it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, I want my neighbors to improve their property. You know, I mean, most people, when, they're going to grow more deer than they're ever going to harvest, or they're going to grow more wildlife than they're ever going to harvest, period. And so, you know, the more we can educate people, the more we're all going to benefit from them. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate you adding that piece to it, and you can improve anything. It's just a matter of, you know, mind and effort sometimes. Sometimes it's finance, but a lot of times it's it's thinking through these things and, and simple Um all right, I think I want to end there. We're going to have you yep. back on. This is a great conversation, very in-depth. I appreciate you taking the time with us, and uh, thanks for taking time out of your schedule today. I really appreciate it, Jim. Yeah, it was great, and I uh, look forward to another one. So, All right, we'll talk again soon. See ya. Good night. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.